0: Welcome to the second of our Christmas podcasts. The festive season is well in swing, and BMJ.com is full of our Christmas stories from the survival time of chocolates on the ward to proof that an apple a day keeps the doctor away, or at least the cardiologist. Later, we'll be hearing what it's like to grow up in a hospital that used to be a poorhouse.
1: And the uh, undertakers in those days used to take bodies in a in wicker baskets, these were long baskets, and they—the they, lid never fitted. Mm. And the first f- dead person's face I saw haunted me for weeks. After so the lid wasn't properly on, and there was this yellow face inside, and I, I thought afterwards, that's the—that's the only way you could escape mm. from this hospital. A bit like the
2: Abbe
0: Faria in
2: the Count of Monte Cristo.
0: <laughs> and also, whether it's better to be right or be happy.
2: Well, we found the. The quality of life in the woman went up, and the quality of life in the man went down, and that was statistically significant.
0: But first. Christmas story, of course, started with immaculate conception, and though it's generally agreed that sex is useful when getting pregnant, it might not be necessary, at least in America. Earlier, I spoke to Professors Amy Herring and Carolyn Hulpen, both from the University of North Carolina, about the research that has revealed an outbreak of virgin birth in the USA. Amy, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us.
3: Thank you very much.
0: And uh, Caroline, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Why did you start looking for this? I mean, did you have an idea that there may be some virgin births? Uh,
3: Yes. So we were working actually on a different project, looking at predictors of longer term virginity. So what characterized women who were virgins in early adulthood And as part of that analysis, found a number of women who considered themselves virgins, but had reported pregnancies and births. And so we were quite surprised and wanted to look into that a little further.
0: And you use the Ad study as your data set. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, who's in there uh, and what was it set up to look at?
4: Okay, uh, it's the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health. Um, it's often referred to as Ad Health. Um, it's a large nationally representative study of persons who were adolescents and in school in the 1994-95 school year. So it goes across the U S um, it's uh, started out with about 20,000 people and they have been followed since 94. Um, most recently they were interviewed in 2008. Um, so it's the same group of people who've been interviewed mm-hmm. repeatedly. Um, and they're now uh, at, in 2008, they were in their 20, they were 24 to 32 years old. So um Ad health is intended to be kind of an omnibus study in the sense of uh, it has a wide scope of content so that investigators not only in the u s but around the world can look at a lot of different topics uh, using that data set so it's it 's a widely available data set um, that is heavily used by researchers in a variety of, of disciplines
0: mm. and what exactly is the kind of data it 's capturing is it sort of attitudes is it uh, diet is it, you know what's in there well,
4: that and more <laughs> uh, there are it's a it's really a wide scope and the one of the original emphases of this study was to capture um, contextual information to, so to try to look at um, influences on adolescent development and health uh, within the context of the different places in which they live and work and play so um so there's contextual information about their neighborhoods, their schools. Um, there is self-report about behavior, attitudes, relationship quality with parents and peers, and romantic relationships. Um, risk behavior, substance use, um, criminal behavior, sexual behavior. Um, there's um, and as they get older. The content changes a little bit because what's relevant becomes a little different, and so there's a, a a complete pregnancy history and marriage and cohabitation history so it's it's really quite diverse in terms of the content
0: mm. and you know pertinent to to what you've looked at, how did they ask about sex, and how were they you know able to quantify that um, you know there's a proper understanding amongst the respondents about you know what sex actually means?
4: mm mm-hmm. um, Health did two things to try to uh, optimize the quality and the accuracy of that, those kinds of sensitive questions. Um, one is that sex is asked, vaginal sex is asked about very explicitly in terms of a, uh, you know, a biological definition of, um, you know, penis insertion into the vagina. So it's very explicit, and that was true from the very beginning uh, with the adolescent um, interview. Um, of course, there's always the possibility that people may, may or may not understand that exactly. Um, however, the other sort of thing that AdHelp does to try to maximize the quality of those types of data is to um, use a, uh, a CASI, a, a computer assisted self interview, so that the person doesn't have to respond directly to an interview, an interviewer. They enter the information directly into a laptop. With the idea that since they don't have to um, say out loud what their answer is, that they'll be more candid uh, mm. in their responses.
0: So, um, how did you actually look at, through this data to to identify virgin births?
3: So at each wave of the study, so here we're analyzing data from three different study waves, so the same person reporting at three points in time, uh, women were asked uh, about their history of sexual intercourse and Mm -hmm. also uh, their history of pregnancy. And so we defined in the analysis a virgin as a woman who consistently reported no history of vaginal intercourse. And then we looked at uh, dates of pregnancies uh, reported by the women to determine whether a woman had reported a virgin pregnancy or not. We also had a third group of women who don't appear much in the paper. We called them uh, born-again virgins, and those women were inconsistent reporters over time. So at one wave, they would say they had had vaginal intercourse, um, and then at a later wave, would deny that they had had vaginal intercourse.
0: I see. So what did you find? How many virgin births have have happened in the U.S. recently? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Well, uh, so if we rely on self-report, out of all the women who reported a pregnancy in the study, uh, just under 1% of them uh, reported that it was a um, reported dates consistent with virgin birth. So I, I do want to make clear they weren't reporting I was a virgin who had a birth, but they were reporting dates of onset of vaginal intercourse and dates of pregnancy that were consistent with virgin pregnancy.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and you did a sort of demographic breakdown to see, you know, what might sort of tie into that. So what did you find there?
3: Uh, So that was interesting. We found that those women were more likely uh, than other women to have signed a pledge of chastity. And when their parents, who were asked questions at the first study wave while they were in middle school or high school, um, responded to questions about communication about sex indicated that there might have been a lower level of communication about sex and birth control. So the parents were more likely to say that they would find it difficult to talk to their children about these topics uh, and that their children would be embarrassed by talking about those topics. Mm.
0: Now, I mean, obviously, there there haven't been actual virgin births going on. So, what does what does this um, study tell us?
4: Uh, Well, I think that uh, it one thing that tells us is that uh, it's really important to try to implement as many uh, features in your study as possible to um, to maximize the quality and the understanding um, that. The quality of the data and the, the understanding of respondents uh, to the questions that are being asked. So, uh, in addition to the things that we've already talked about, I mean, one possibility would be to also to sort of pretest questionnaires, which EdHelp does as well. But to pretest questionnaires in terms of understanding and, and how how people are, are um, looking at the the way that the questions being posed. Sure, um, sure. So, um, but even with all of those things, it's I think inevitable that some usually very small percentage of participants are not necessarily going to uh, approach the questionnaire with the same level of understanding and also the same level of attention to um to the questions
0: mm. and uh given your wider research as well, um does it tell us anything about? No sex education that should be going on, do you think?
3: <laughs> I mean, we looked at sex education and it was not related uh, to the way the women responded. However, we did not have a lot of detail about the type of sexual education program, so we could not tell for a given school whether the sex education was particularly useful. Perhaps it was abstinence only education. You know, so it was difficult to look at the influence of that, given the types of questions that were asked.
4: Yeah, I think that's really important to emphasize that it's, it's quite a mix of different types of sex education curricula. And so there could be sort of a washout in terms yeah. of whether there were effects or not for any given group of people.
0: And that article is available online on BMJ.com. Now, if you're working over the festive period, you may feel like you live in the clinic. But Gareth Jones, Emeritus Professor of Anesthesia at Cambridge University, recalls his early life in the City Lodge Hospital, formerly Cardiff Union Workhouse. What was the actual building like? In my head, uh, a workhouse must be this really sort of dark, forbidding, cold, grimy place. Um, What was the actual building like? Um...
1: It certainly wasn't cold or grimy, in fact it was spotless, um, and it was my home. If I if I go back to the beginning of the 19th century, that's when Cardiff became a major industrial setup with lots and lots of poor people. So a refuge was set up on the site of the hospital, a refuge housed 300 three people, and then not long after that, um, because the, ref- the refuge wasn't able to deal with sick people, they built an infirmary. So the infirmary was in the se- similar sort of stone style, and the infirmary was there um, when I lived there. The, inf- the infirmary was probably built about 1870, something like that. And, then, and there was a most extraordinary man called Sheen. He was the medical officer of um, the workhouse very forward thinking, he probably wrote the first book on the role of the medical officer in the workhouse, where he laid down his role, his role um, superseded that of the master and the matron, he could could decide when it, it was his responsibility to take over, and they had to permit this, and he laid it down in his book. So so, somewhere along the line, uh, I think, you know, in 1930, the the workhouse system ended. So somewhere along the line, the workhouse people had uh, undergone a metamorphosis to long-term residents. They weren't called workhouse inmates Mm. anymore. I think the the term inmate probably disappeared. And what I discovered was under the NHS Act of 1943 was the Part 3 Accommodation. So part three accommodation was provided for those people who had no provision to look after themselves. So right. the, the, I think the former inmates became long-term, I mean they were very long-term, the only way out was through the mortuary. I don't think you ever went out because mm-hmm. there was nowhere for you to go to. And I think I remember the, I to cut in through the back of a hospital past the morgue, I was fascinated although I could see what was going on in there, and the uh, undertakers in those days used to take bodies in a, in wicker baskets. These were long baskets, and they were, the lid never fitted. Mm. And the first f- dead person's face I saw haunted me for weeks. Of the, the lid wasn't properly on, and there was this yellow face inside. And I, I thought afterwards, that's the that's the only way you could escape mm. from this hospital. A bit like the Abbey Ferrier in the Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds sort of almost like a big fortress
1: there. The the, the building was um, I mean to to outsiders uh, grim. It was it was grey stone, three stories. But um, the photographs that that I've seen of that time, uh, the airing yards gosh that sounds pretty austere there were there were there were lawns and flower beds uh one of them was called mabel's garden was mabel was one of the inmates i use that term because the, they were referred to as inmates i mean I, I remember it as um not an unpleasant or frightening place it was um uh it, it wasn't it, it, it didn't really f- feel a hospital as much as
0: an old building mm. Mm. It's quite unusual for, well these days people can't imagine a, a child having a sort of run of a hospital like that didn't you, Were you free to run around? Oh yes,
1: although we lived in a flat and the flat as I said was right over the front of the, ho- in, in the main building so I could look out on the main road a tram sort of went by a, a outside I had the whole, the whole run of the hospital and in, in many ways, I was I was like little Lord Fauntleroy. I, I was when they were when they were sort of converting it into a luxury flat. Every flat is a luxury flat or an executive flat. I thought, oh gosh, this is my chance to go in. And it was quite extraordinary going into the very same room that I'd grown up in, I and mean, it was my bedroom that I looked out of the window, because in those days you could the people the, 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 the crowds that would go to Ninian Park football ground would walk from the station in town. And the notable thing is we knew there was an international match because all the men would wear white scarves because they were all miners, So the miner would always Mm. wear a white scarf to indicate that they washed Mm. the coal off. So all these men, you never saw policemen or police dogs. There would be thousands and thousands of men, no women, going to see the international match from Queen Street Station all the way through so I could see all this going on from my observation platform in the front
0: of the hospital so how did you end up helping your dad with uh, operations and things
1: Um, that really was because he was often giving anaesthetics, I mean his job was general medicine obstetrics and anaesthetics and he was the one chap who was there all the time so if anyone needed anaesthetics he would give them Although I think they did have an anaesthetist later on. So he would go down to the accident unit and, you know, when I was, I suppose, 10 or 11, he would say, come along down. I would start off with the x-ray films. They were in... and I would, I would be sent off then, because of all, all the processing was done in, the, in that department, to get the x-ray film from the fixer, wash it, and bring the thing in and show it to whoever was going to put the plaster parrots on. So once I'd done that, he he would say, well, okay, may as well um hang on to this mask and pour the pour the ether onto the onto the uh mask. So that was a sort of there wasn't anything special about that, that was just like doing it when you were a medical student later on. It's a very precocious
0: medical student at the age of well,
1: eleven. Yeah, I yeah, I I suppose so. But um that, that, that's how, how that's how it was, really. I mean, it was it was perfectly safe because he, he was there, and uh, I mean, I wasn't just left <laughs> left just holding the holding the
0: force or anything.
1: So that was a, a perfectly natural uh, thing thing to do, really.
0: So other people had chores to take out the rubbish, and you had to.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that was that was just a perfectly normal thing, really.
0: That kind of experience you had as a child, yeah, that that sort of experience must be. Lost to.
1: Yeah, I think some. A friend of mine was a professor of anaesthetics in Zimbabwe, and he, I'm talking about maybe 15 years ago now, so long after my experience, he took his small son into theatre to help with an operation. There was a terrific outcry. He was suspended. It was all over the press. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it just. Couldn't happen. It would be just utterly impossible. Mm. Well, I mean, I used to take my children to hospital when I was. I mean, I worked at Norfolk Park, and we used to go in there and breathe helium, um, and sulfur hexafluoride. He, helium, if you breathe helium, yeah, you can you can mix up a helium oxygen mixture and breathe.
3: Like that.
1: And then you can mix up sulfur hexafluoride and oxygen. It would just be this. Mm. So these are all these are rather good experiments and we had <laughs> meteorological balloons that we filled with helium in, the, in Norfolk Park and of course we didn't realise that it was a, a, the forced air air conditioned system so we had this meteorological balloon which filled the whole corridor and it was s- slowly moving <laughs> moving, up the, <laughs> moving up the corridor so we ser- I certainly took my kids in to hospitals and I mean in, when I was working in California I was doing experiments with Dogs. These were trained dogs which had little loops on their vagus nerves. We could cool the vagus nerve and do experiments to do the control of breathing. So a whole team of these people and the kids. were like, said, can we go in and see the dogs? And I'd, I'd get them to run on the dogs' treadmills and, uh, <laughs> uh, and with with the dogs. So the dogs were trained to run on the treadmills, and because and we 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 I mean, doing experiments on one another was part of the part of the story. I mean, particularly in. Uh, in in California at that time. So I mean, it was it was interesting. I mean, I I, I was asked to if I would, wanted to go up on a high altitude expedition. The idea was to take us to the top of White Mountain on the on the California Nevada border to see whether they they could induce cerebral and pulmonary edema and to screen us. We had to breathe um, nitrogen and there was no, no oxygen. And this was just like the, the, um, the experience I had when I mentioned the, the iron lung. Because I was put in this iron lung by Emrys Harris when I was a patient, and it sort of closed my, uh, my neck. What I didn't mention was he then turned on the switch, which, which made you breathe. Mm. So there was this huge <sighs> sucking feeling. And it was like that. I mean, breathing um, uh, a, a gas with no oxygen in it I was just sitting there, I, I took some breaths of, of nitrogen and was sort of looking around the room, but suddenly this huge hypoxic drive, it was just like the just like the iron, the iron lamp. <laughs> so it sort of reminded me of that, of, that, of that experience when I sort of stuck it in my, my little story.
0: And Gareth's article, Growing Up Over the Shop, is available online on bmj.com. Now, our final story for 2013. Does being right always make you happy, at least in a relationship? Bruce Arrell, Professor of Primary Care at the University of Auckland, wanted to know, so he designed a pilot study. Being right or being happy? Bruce, where did the idea that they're mutually exclusive come from?
2: Well, um, I had a patient in my clinic who had separated from his wife And he was quite annoyed at her. It wasn't until I realized he wanted to be right rather than happy that he was able to get out of the depression. And when I think back about it, it's quite a common problem in general practice with people just sort of digging their toes in when if they let go, then things could get better. And I was thinking this week with the Mandela funeral that that's what happened with de Klerk and Mandela. They both decided to stop being right, and then things started to move in South Africa. So I think this this idea actually has some worldwide implications.
0: <laughs> and uh, has anyone looked at this before? Uh,
2: no, there's been no empirical work. There was one uh, psychological um, Piece about it and just talking about how people need to be less attached to being right. But that was the only thing we could find in the literature. So this is the first study to actually get some real data. So we're quite pleased with that. Mm
0: -hmm. And uh, so how did you go about designing a study to to look at this?
2: Well, first of all, we had to find a couple. And uh, because of the intervention, we were able to inform the man but not the woman. So that was a little bit tricky, and um, the uh, the man was told to agree with everything with his wife said that he was never to contradict her, and then they both had to keep quality of life. So they were both reasonably happy to keep quality of life. The woman um, refused to do the, the third and final one, but um, so we actually had. Uh, three data points on the man and two data points on the woman.
0: So it wasn't all uh, plain sailing in the study then?
2: No, well after 12 days, um, the man was starting to find the woman unbearable and so sat on the end of the bed, made her a cup of tea and said, you know, the study was over, called the data safety monitoring committee who immediately terminated the study. So it only lasted 12 days.
0: So uh, what did you find when you analysed your quality of life uh, data? Well,
2: we found the quality of life in the woman went up and the quality of life in the man went down and that was statistically significant. Um, And so we concluded that whilst agreeing completely with somebody is good to the person on the the receiving end of that, the person... um, agreeing to be right it's actually quite uh, uh, hazardous for them so uh we don't recommend uh agreeing with somebody all the time and that uh, a more balanced approach is probably uh, required We we did think actually it, it may be a a a good thing for a marriage just to have one person agreeing with the other we were quite hopeful that that would be the way it would pan out but unfortunately that wasn't the case
0: <laughs> so um Given this was the the small nature of this study, uh, have you got an idea, or do you want to go on and, and uh, have a definitive study, more couples in a longer term? Well, we
2: we thought about that, but we thought you know the adverse effects are potentially quite dangerous. They um, could lead to divorce and possibly homicide. So we decided uh, not to go ahead with the definitive study. We felt the pilot study uh, you know pointed to. You know serious adverse effects Um, but we are planning a couple of others and one is to look at the impact of saying I told you so uh, on couples that that's one useful thing we could look at and the other one is looking at when something goes wrong is how blame is allocated because we think that's again another problem with couples they like allocating blame and we thought that might be a useful thing so we're going to move on to new territory
0: (laughs) Um the BMJ Christmas papers are always light-hearted, but there, there is a serious uh, uh, thing in there. So as you said at the beginning, this was inspired by a real-life case. Um, is this something that you do talk to your patients about, You know, making sure that being a bit pro- more pragmatic about uh, some of the things in their lives?
2: Well, I think re- raising the distinction of being right or being happy actually uh, is quite an insight for people. And can often get them out of a vicious cycle. So I think um, you know this does have some you know practical applications. And you know we see a lot of marital distress in general practice, and uh, being aware of that as as a as a distinction and to raise the issue with patients uh, actually has some benefits. And with this man I talked about, he was then able to move on, and his sort of depressed mood um, got better fairly quickly. So. Uh, we we think it actually has a lot of uh, practical implications.
0: If a plethora of Christmas parties means you're suffering from an excess of festive spirit, how does that compare to James Bond's average day? Check out last week's podcast to hear how you compare. You can also hear about Doctors of the World, the BMJ's Christmas charity, and the work they're doing right here in London. That's all for this week and indeed for this year. Join us again in 2014 when we'll be bringing you more from the world of medicine. Until then, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from all of us at the BMJ.